from Heterodox Academy. This is Half Hour of Heterodoxy. Conversations with scholars and authors. Ideas from diverse viewpoints and perspectives. Here's your host, Chris Martin. Welcome to a special episode of Half Hour of Heterodoxy. In June, Heterodox Academy had their second annual conference in New York. Some of you know this because you were there and I had a chance to talk with you. Today's episode is a series of short conversations I had with people at the conference, and it also has one excerpt from a symposium at the conference. The first half of this episode is about psychological issues, and it relates to some of the themes in The Coddling of the American Mind. The second half features conversations about unconventional ideas. And just a note, these interviews were recorded at the conference, so there's more background noise than typical. The episode begins with John Haidt. So the last time we spoke on the podcast, we were talking about The Coddling of the American Mind, which had just been published, and you've been continuing to write about that and research that. Tell me a bit about what you found. Sure. So just since the book has come out, uh, Greg and I have learned a lot. Uh, I'll tell you about, I guess, maybe three or four ways that the the issues have expanded way off of campus. Um, So one is that it's really clear that the dynamics we describe are happening internationally, at least in, in all of the major English-speaking countries. So uh, uh, if you go to thecoddling.com, uh, I have a new page. It's just being put up today. Uh, I'm not even sure where it'll be, but it'll be on international findings. And um, what we found is that if you look at rising rates of depression and anxiety uh, for teenagers, you find exactly the same thing in the UK, uh, same in Canada, uh, very similar, uh, same in Australia. We don't yet know about New Zealand. And then we'll move on to look at continental Europe. So the mental health crisis is everywhere. And the overprotection of kids is in, in all of the English-speaking countries, probably not as much in Germany and Northern Europe. I don't think they do. They don't overprotect as much there. That's one expansion. It's international. Um, a second expansion is out into the work world. So uh, Gen Z is the focus of the book, kids born in 1996 and later. And Gen Z really just began to graduate from college one year ago. So they've only joined the corporate world for the last year. And whenever I meet business people, I teach in a business school, I meet a lot of business people, I always ask them, uh, do you have any employees that graduated from college in the last year or two? And when they work in large companies or they say yes, I say, how's it working out? And I often hear some variation of this. I'm completely exhausted. It's just constant conflict. Somebody said something, and now the whole company is in an uproar. Um, so the, the speech issues that we have on campus that I think we have not handled well or resolved well, I think we've taught some very bad habits around speech and offense taking. And so students take these attitudes into the corporate world, and when they overhear something they don't like, they won't deal with it themselves or ignore it. They go to HR and file a formal complaint. And then the third is looking at uh, how it goes down into um, high schools and elementary schools. So a lot of the exact same phenomena we describe, the sort of the campus culture, uh, especially the culture around common enemy identity politics, uh, you know, focusing, uh, examining everything in terms of power structures, that has spread down very quickly into elite private schools. Uh, It's not in most public schools. My kids go to New York City public schools, and thank God for the bureaucracy. They can't change that fast. Uh, although, of course, Bill de Blasio is trying. Um, but so far, uh, so far, the public schools that I know of seem to be generally okay. But I, I hear from a lot of parents of kids in private schools, and I've spoken at a few private schools, and it's very much like our elite um, you know, New England um, um, liberal arts colleges. 
If you've read The Coddling of the American Mind, you may recall that part of the book is about safetyism, which is the tendency to reduce all risks. One of the speakers at a symposium at the conference, Amna Khalid, a history professor at Carleton, talked about her experience with safetyism. So I'm at Carleton College, and in one of the courses I was teaching, it's a women's and gender studies course, um, I had a, an African-American young man um, who were talking about sexual orientation, and he actually volunteered, which I thought was incredibly brave, that he was anti-gay before he came to college, and college opened up his mind, and now he thinks differently, and um, you know, talked about how important college was for him in coming to that realization. And afterwards, another student of mine followed me into my office and said, you know, I was really disappointed in the way you handled that. And I said, handled what? And she said, well, you know, this was like, it was very homophobic. And I said, no, it was anti-homophobia. This is a man who was telling us how he changed his mind and that being in an educational space allowed him to do that and question the assumptions he'd made. Um, And so to kind of echo, um, show you how this is echoed more broadly on campus, we had um, a former white supremacist come to our convocations. We have these weekly uh, convocations where we have speakers from outside come. And he came and he was really talking about how he used to be a white supremacist, how he changed his mind, and how he has devoted his life to getting other white supremacists to change their mind. Now, I can't think of anyone more virtuous to listen to as far as I'm concerned, but I walked into class that day, and my students and students across campus were really upset, and they felt unsafe with this person on campus. Um, a number of them protested as well, um, and I found it very disappointing to see that we have lost the ability to (coughs) find a space where people are allowed to change their minds. Another theme in the coddling of the American mind is the overuse of social media. I talked to Anya Pechko, founder of Project B at the conference. She's working on addressing our addiction to social media and cell phones more generally. I am somebody who is trying to impact the world in a positive way to kind of connect and connect back in in a social way, human way, not social media way. And how does the work you do connect to John Hyde's research on how social media might be causing problems? So um, I got interested in in Jonathan's work after I'd done some research for one of the companies that he is a co-founder of, Legro. Um, Him and Lenore Skenazi set up, you know, kind of a really right way of addressing Um, the current state of fragility in kids. So this whole notion that Peter Gray talks about, the importance of free play and how we develop socially because of it, um, it became really interesting as I started seeing trends in social media and the likes and how everything is great. And then when you watch um, the rise of mental illness and suicides in young people, so the picture of likes and social media greatness did not match the data of what's really going on. So as I got deeper into research, I realized that we are now connected to each other through this digital world. And it became really um, clear that one of the things that I think is missing is this human connection. So that's when I decided to launch Project B and really encourage people to literally just be 
And so while we're trying to come up with apps to get off the apps, I'm really encouraging people to just unplug and put their phone down and literally just um, not be on social media, which is really, really hard. Right. Have you had any success so far? I have. So um, I just finished reading uh, a book by Cal Newport, Digital Minimalism. And so he outlines a 30-day detox, which I, you know, I, I thought I had no apps. And a friend of mine, you know, took my phone and said, well, what about weather app and Uber app and seamless app? So I've deleted most of my apps. Um, I only have Twitter, which I use for work. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm going out without my phone now. Um, I have a dog that has tremendous anxiety issues. And so when I walk her now, I don't have my phone with me. And her behavior changed in ways that, you know, it's really hard. You know, I'm really connected to her now. So I don't have my phone as a distraction. So I've been doing that. Um, I've been doing dinners and brunches and just inviting friends over. As soon as they come over, there's absolutely no cell phones. There's no pictures. There's no shots of the food. And it's, it's been amazing. How do you enforce that rule? Oh, well, give me a phone now. It li- literally, you come into my house. You can't be on the phone. I also talked to one of the journalists at the conference. I'm here with Jesse Single. How would you describe yourself? <laughs> uh, an incredible journalist, or just a, ju- a journalist, how about For New York Magazine most of the time? Yep, I'm a contributing writer at New York Magazine. Uh, I used to be an st- uh, editor and a staff writer at large there. Tell me about your new very heterodox project. Yeah, well, so it's actually, it's not that new. I've been already working on it for a couple of years, but it's a book provisionally titled The Quick Fix. It's basically asking the question of why... Americans in particular, why we so often look to these sort of TED talky, oversimplified, gimmicky psychological solutions to complicated problems. So, one example that I've written about before is the implicit association test, which is this test that is, is pretty troubled when you look at its sort of psychometric properties or its ability to predict behavior, and yet it's sort of taken over the country. Like, it's at the center of a lot of diversity trainings. Its proponents and evangelists have made really bold claims about its ability to help end racism. But we know racially discriminatory outcomes are are really complicated and are generated by a really tangled web of stuff. So apart from the implicit association test, what else do you cover? These other examples are, are, I would argue, a little bit more complicated and and not maybe as straightforward, but uh, power posing is one of them, where some pretty big claims about power posing were made um, in terms of its ability to help create more gender equity in the workplace. Another one is GRIT, which has been presented as a way to help reduce educational inequality. But there's some you know, major questions, first of all, over whether GRIT is different from conscientiousness, a, a pretty well-studied big five personality characteristic, and then whether you can even move someone's conscientiousness that much. So what all these stories have in common is that a burst of excitement surrounds a new idea. And people get the sense that this new idea is really going to help us make progress with this intractable-seeming problem. But, but then another wave of research or debunking comes out, and it always, it's just the same storyline over and over. It always turns out to be more complicated than that. So what advice do you have for social psychologists, if any? <laughs> I would say get involved. I would say, in general, don't listen to journalists for advice, But because um, I have poked around in this area a little bit. You know, get involved in the open science movement. Part of my book is about how, you know, if you adopt things like um, pre-registration, and if you do more replication, stuff like that. These ideas maybe wouldn't catch on as quickly as they did despite a lack of evidence if the first wave of research had been a little bit more sturdy and rigorous. And in the meantime, if people want to know more about you, where can they find more info? 
Yeah, I write a lot about this stuff on my newsletter, uh, jessysingle.substack.com. I'm also on Twitter, far too much, at jessysingle. Um, definitely yeah, far too much. Definitely far too much. Oh, I also have a, a sort of baby podcast called Single Minded Conversations where I talk to a lot of social scientists. You should come on it. Thank um, you. And for those of you listening, it's S-I-N-G-A-L. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, those are the main places people can find me. I'm also still writing fairly frequently for New York Magazine and other outlets. I also talked to a sociologist at the conference. So I'm talking to Fabio Rojas. Fabio, how would you describe yourself? I'm a professor of sociology at Indiana University, and I'm also editing Context Magazine, the official magazine of the American Sociological Association. Fabio was previously on episode 29 of this podcast on the sociology of activism. You had a very contentious blog post on your blog, Org Theory, about a month ago. It was about the relationship between sociology and economics. Can you talk about that? Yes. Um, so that blog post uh, came out, I believe, somewhat time in uh, early April. Um, it presented two arguments. Uh, one argument um, was about the way that economics as a discipline is built to produce policy impact while sociology doesn't have a lot of those similar uh, resources. So here's a very simple example. If you take microeconomics at the graduate level, you'll learn something called welfare theory. And that's just a very academic way of saying, if you do a policy and you count up all the benefits and all the costs, does it make everybody better off? So this is the part of the graduate economics curriculum where people talk about things like Pareto, uh, Pareto improvements, uh, Caldor Hicks criteria for, for policy and so forth. Uh, in contrast, sociology doesn't teach any of that at all. That's not an exaggeration. Like you could take an entire PhD in sociology, such as I did at the University of Chicago, and you will never get any discussion of how to evaluate policy, how to count costs and benefits and so forth. And this is not to say that doesn't happen in some social departments. Certainly out of the hundreds of very excellent sociology programs we have, there are discussions of policy. But analysis of um, policy outcomes is just simply not a standard part of the curriculum. So uh, another example is uh, the National Bureau for Economic Research, uh, which is an institution um, whose main purpose is to primarily collect economics research, usually pre-publication before it hits the journal, but to distribute it and make it widely available. And I believe they've been operating some form since the 1920s. In contrast, sociology until Social Archive, which is a website where you can write, put working papers, uh, was not operational until about two or three years ago. And so what that suggested to me is that if it's not in your curriculum, not in your institutions, and also not in the career. For example, a lot of economists go to the Federal Reserve and work for a year or two, and then lots of them get jobs in academia. In contrast, sociologists almost never hire people. Of course, there are exceptions. There are some people, for example, my advisor at the University of Chicago worked at the Rand Corporation for a while before coming back to academia, but he's an exception. Uh, but uh, by and large, most sociologists, once they leave academia, never come back. People are very reluctant to hire sociologists who've left the career track. So if it's not in the career, it's not in the curriculum, not in the institution, what does that tell you? It tells you that sociologists uh, have not taken the time and effort to build a platform for influence. And when I put this out there, I'm not trying to pick on any individual sociologist. For example, sociologists will uh, say, testify before Congress or their work for a member of Congress or something like that or a federal agency. But those are exceptions. They are not 
the product of a concerted collective effort to build platforms for influencing policy. Right. I believe on the day the blog post came out, Tressie McMillan Cottom was testifying before Congress. Right. And that just happened to coincide. Right. And, uh, and uh, I think she's a very interesting sociologist. You should all read her book, Lower Ed, which we, by the way, reviewed and gave a very positive review to in Context Magazine. So uh, three cheers for her. This is not a way to um, uh, isolate or point a finger at anybody. I, in fact, if I were to a racist critique, it's also a critique of myself and that I, as I retrospect and think about my career, uh, I've tried to put things out. I've had some policy impact here and there. We could talk about that a little bit, but it's not from any concerted effort. Like, for example, there is no National Bureau of Sociology that helped me with my career, or there's never been a place where I stepped up and I said, hey, let's build a thing for sociologists. I'm trying to change that now that I'm a little bit older, but it applies to me. So I was this, this uh, post is not triggered by any individual person. And if anybody had that uh, concept, that is uh, mistaken. That's just not true. Then the second issue that I raised in the uh, blog post about economics and sociology is that sociologists have retreated from one form of communication that I personally te- like to enjoy, uh, that it's very good for communicating policy-related issues, and that's blogging. And what I pointed out uh, in the blog post is that economists, for example, once again, using them as an example, lots of economists, uh, from those of, with, of very, very modest stature to those of international stature, maintain blogs, frequent blogs, like um, Thomas Piketty, right, to the French... Uh, uh, the French uh, economist who wrote the, the the big book on inequality. We may talk about libertarians like Tyler Cowen, Alex Tabarrok. So it's on the left, it's on the right, it's all over the place. And people at teaching institutions and leading researchers, lots of them use blogs. However, sociologists have retreated from that uh, for reasons that are honestly not clear to me. Part of it is just that the kind of uh, trendiness of blogs probably just had its normal life cycle. But still, blogs remain a powerful tool because if you really need a thousand words or 500 words, a series of tweets is not going to really hack it. Uh, you could break something up into a series of tweets and then it kind of gets garbled. Uh, also, another problem with Twitter is that archiving is very difficult. So, for example, you're not allowed to search into the past of Twitter very far. But if you want like essays that are in between a tweet and uh, a more formal journal article, blogs are really optimal for that. And the fact that a blog like Marginal Revolution get hundreds of thousands of readers per day, day leading economists still use it, that signals to me that they have intellectual value. And that really makes me scratch my chin and say, why have sociologists retreated from that? And I don't really have a good answer to that. Um, and I very um, humorously um, uh, said in the post that, you know, maybe it's just that if sociologists were really interested in policy impact, they would build these, they would build the curriculum, they would build the institutions. They would do social media like Twitter, but they would also blog and maintain other things and so forth. And those are the two arguments that I set out there. And just to underline what uh, we mentioned a minute ago, which is that these are critiques of our collective. You know, these are not critiques like I didn't say, Chris Martin, you're a bad person because you're not doing blog or something like that. That was not what this is meant at. But to say, let's take a mirror to our profession and say, you know, we have fabulous things to contribute you know, so thank God the social archive was invented. I think that's a step in the right direction. But for example, maybe more leading members of the profession could write blog posts, you know, like more extended discussions of issues, you know, tweets every day. They're wonderful. They're nice, but they just don't have the impact of a well-written essay. 
Right. Um, and so, so the pushback you got was that there are some sociology blogs out there. Yeah, there there were there were some there there are multiple pushbacks uh, during that um, that uh, moment of time. And for the future, you know, when this is listened to, maybe a year from now or maybe more, uh, what happened was a day or two after I wrote that blog post, and I can follow the traffic because, like most blogs, WordPress has a um, a console on the website that allows you to track traffic, and you know. Org theory may get like one to 2,000 readers a day. So it's a good blog. It has a healthy readership, but we're not talking New York Times level. Um, but then Justin Wolfers, the economist at the University of Michigan, a very prominent public, public intellectual, wrote a very cheeky blog post where he, he really uh, made fun of sociology and that set it off. It triggered a whole um, uh, firestorm, literally. So on, I, we went from about 1,000 readers a day to about 10,000 readers per day for a couple of days. So it was kind of a real spike of publicity, a lot of it negative. Um, and then a couple of criticisms came out. Uh, a few of these were uh, very kind of chin-scratching. So, for example... Um, you know, people said, I can't believe that you say that, you know, there are no sociologists with public impact. It's like, I never said that. It was about the collective effort to build a platform that everybody can share in. Um, there was an interesting exchange between Tina Fetner, a sociologist who I respect a great deal. And she said, well, what about graphic novels? And yes, there are some sociologists who are writing graphic novels. And actually on my blog, I was promoting a friend's graphic novel the day before. So I wasn't against that. But the point is, graphic novels are very hard to write. Not everybody has the skill for them. This really, if you can do it, that's great. But I don't see that as something the average sociologist could do, even though we might really enjoy them and get a lot out mm-hmm. of them. They could be very good things to read. So there were some kind of chin-scratching criticisms, but then there were some d- deeper criticisms that came out. One really deep criticism was uh, people say, well, Fabio, the reason maybe we don't have this public impact sociology is because, you know, the incentives aren't there for it. So I think that was a great criticism, which is, you know, um, we then have to think, what can we do to build up uh, public impact sociology? And, um, you know, so originally when people thought about, like, how to reward public sociology, the question, the issue might be something like, how do you reward uh, people for writing Twitters, uh, Twitter streams or something like that? But it doesn't have to be quite as out there as that. You could start with some more moderate steps. For example, why not make one of the courses you teach public communication of sociology or take some of these ideas of policy analysis and turn that into an undergraduate course? Or another thing you could do, which is a little bit more adventurous, you could say something like, okay, we will continue to hire the traditional academic like myself, like you who spend a lot of our time in the academy, but occasionally we will hire somebody in the job uh, description will say must have career in the public sector or the nonprofit sector or the for-profit sector in a way that's similar to a business school or a policy school. So um, maybe we aren't quite at the point today. Today is June 2019. Uh, we're not at the point where we're going to rebuild the sociological profession around this. But there are some very intuitive ways that are simple and low cost that would actually help sociology develop a um, a potential and a set of resources for public impact. I also talked to Nicholas Phillips. Uh, so I'm a research associate with Heterodox Academy, and I've been doing that since 2016. So you have a heterodox piece in Quillette about technology that doesn't neatly fall on left or right wing lines. Tell me a bit about that piece. Correct. So um, I think last week I published a uh, piece in Quillette called The Fallacy of Techno-Optimism. And basically I was looking at a popular 
uh, mode of discourse for thinking about new technologies, which argues that the social impacts of new technologies like driverless cars and automation will be positive because previous rounds of new technologies had positive social impacts. So the idea is that um, people that are pessimistic about driverless cars today are sort of like the horse and buggy people that were skeptical, pessimistic about automobiles at the turn of the 20th century. Those people were wrong. Automobiles were good. Therefore, driverless cars are going to be good and uh, we have nothing to worry about. And so I think that this argument is a is a fallacy. I think that we, uh, when we have new rounds of technology that implicate fundamentally different problems, uh, for example, driverless cars uh, implicate issues around surveillance, monitoring, um, national security vulnerabilities that come from everything, you know, our entire transportation system being on a hackable grid, which the automobile has nothing to tell us about. It didn't implicate those problems. So it's really no precedent at all for dealing with the problems that driverless cars implicate. Um, the heterodox angle uh, comes from uh, an argument that I made where basically you need um, a debate on the merits of new technologies. You can't make historical analogies when the technologies are unprecedented. And instead, you need to ask questions like, do we know what this technology does to us? Uh what what can we predict about it based on what we know is is it is it good and if we don't know what it does to us on what basis does our confidence in this new technology rest and for that debate on the merits of technology to be effective you need a debate between liberals and conservatives and that's important because liberals and conservatives have different cognitive styles uh, liberals are more open to uh, openness, really. They're more, they prefer new experiences. They're comfortable with experimentation and the unknown. Conservatives prefer uh, the status quo and tend to fear change and prefer order. Um, I see conservatives as playing a very important role in the way that we think about new technology because they are basically running quality control on the ideas of the, pro- of the ideas of progressives and liberals. You see this most clearly um, in the, uh, the social world where new social ideas are vetted by conservatives and the, the new social ideas that win a critical mass of conservatives tend to be implemented and the ones that don't aren't. So democracy was a new social idea at one point. Um, conservatives resisted it initially, but a critical mass of conservatives were convinced by arguments for democracy and democracy wound up being implemented. Marxism was a, a new social idea that many progressives thought was the arc of history, the, you know, the, the right side of history, and we would be silly to oppose it. But conservatives were not persuaded by those arguments and successfully resisted Marxism. And so I think that conservatives play an important role similarly in uh, assessing the impact of new technologies. And we need to uh, welcome that debate instead of viewing conservatives and status quo preferring people as hidebound or obstacles or uh, people with obsolete ideas that need to be overcome. So is there a prominent conservative right now who's arguing against driverless cars or any kind of technology on that basis? Well, the guy in the popular uh, sphere that has most prominently expressed skepticism about driverless cars on the right has been Tucker Carlson, who has argued essentially that driving is the occupation that employs more Americans, I think, than any other single occupation. Maybe it was more men. I'm not, I'm not exactly certain, but it employs an enormous amount of people. So 
a kind of cavalier attitude where progress is always good and new technologies are always good um, might fail to reckon with uh, the social costs that are implicated when you switch over from an industry that employs millions and millions of people to an industry that employs a far smaller number of people. And those people tend to have advanced degrees or technical skills that are not evenly distributed in society. Um, So when it comes to you, are you more concerned about hacking? I am concerned basically that we are, that optimism for technologies like driverless cars depends on historical analogies that are inappropriate. So I am concerned about hacking. I don't have myself uh, any technical expertise that leads me to believe that hacking is a, a, a more or, or less serious problem. It's more that it's a new problem as to automobile transportation. And so I view the fact that automobiles were successfully implemented with, with positive social effects as having nothing to say about that problem. It's a new problem. It's an unprecedented problem. Nick's article is titled The Fallacy of Techno-Optimism, and you can find it on Quillette.com. You can find the Twitter handles of other people who were interviewed in this episode in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed the episode. You can find some complete recordings of symposia and talks from the conference on the Heterodox Academy YouTube page. I'd especially recommend the Steven Pinker talk, which was the concluding talk at the conference. The title of that talk was Why Heterodoxy Matters in the World. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us our five-star review on iTunes, and stay tuned for upcoming episodes. This podcast is produced by Heterodox Academy. Find us online at heterodoxacademy.org, on Twitter at HDX Academy, and on Facebook.